We're going to be learning the Hamedrish Vahamasa on Parsha Svaera. The first drasha is on the beginning of the Parsha, when Hashem appears to Moshe, and he gives him a little speech, and in the middle of that speech, he references the Avos, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. So the Gemara, and Rashi quotes some of this, has an explanation of what Hashem is trying to say, that he's rebuking Moshe. Moshe criticized Hashem that his initial efforts to free the Jews were not working. Working. So Hashem is now responding that I promised the land of Israel to the Avos and they never questioned me. And you, Moshe, are now questioning me. So Hashem is unhappy that Moshe questioned him. And according to the Gemara, that was part of the reason why Moshe did not merit to go into Israel. That was part of his punishment for questioning Hashem. And it was so bad that there was some decree against Moshe to be killed, but he was saved because at the end of the day, Moshe spoke up on behalf of the Jewish people. So it wasn't for himself, it was to protect the Jewish people, so therefore he was saved. And then Hashem says, I heard the suffering of the Jewish people and I'm going to free them. And he uses the four languages of redemption, and according to the Gemara, that's one of the reasons why we have four cups at the Seder, because of those four languages of redemption. So this also needs to be explained, why are the four synonyms so significant, each one on its own? And then finally, one last comment that requires explanation, the Gemara in Brachos is discussing the Bracha of Hamotzi, and it explains that in the Torah, when it says, V'yadatem ki ani Hashem Hamotzi, that you will know that I am Hashem who took you out. So it sounds like they will know that Hashem took them out in the past. So what is this referring to? So the Gemara explains that after the Jews left Egypt, there was a moment when Hashem showed them that he took them out. And the Medrash adds that it's referring to the slav, the birds that he gave them in the desert. So again, this requires explanation. Why was giving them the birds food so significant that that's when they finally understood that they were taken out of Egypt? So to explain this, the Hamedrash Vahamasa begins with a comment in the Medrash, which is very strange. It compares Shlomo to Moshe. One of the big mistakes that Shlomo made was that because he was so smart, he thought that since he understood some of the deeper reasons for the mitzvahs, he didn't need to follow them them if they didn't apply. So he felt that he could change halacha based on his understanding of the circumstances. So the classic example is the Torah said the king should not marry too many wives because he might go astray. And Shlomo felt that he would be able to withstand marrying many wives and still staying loyal to Hashem. And this was a mistake because we don't change the laws of the Torah based on our own understanding. So according to the Medrash, the letter Yud, which is in that commandment, Lo yarbe, that letter came and complained to Hashem that Shlomo is violating it. And Hashem responds with a very strong comment that a thousand Shlomos could be destroyed rather than one small letter of the Torah being lost. So one letter of the Torah is more important than even a thousand Shlomos. And in fact, at the end, Shlomo was led astray by his wives. So he was wrong in the end. And what the Torah predicted would happen did happen.
Says the Medrash, the same thing is true of Moshe. When Hashem told him to go save the Jews, so he complains to Hashem and he says it's not working. So he also questioned Hashem. So we have to understand what is the connection this Medrash is drawing between the story of Shlomo versus Moshe, which seemed to be two totally different stories. Shlomo was trying to change a mitzvah based on his own understanding, whereas Moshe was questioning Hashem. So what is the connection between these two stories? So the Medrash Vamasa explains that we have to understand what was the problem with what Shlomo did. The Torah gave a commandment and then it gave a reason for that commandment. So it said that the king should not marry too many wives because they might lead him astray. So what's the problem with taking the explanation seriously and then determining whether it applies to you or not? If the Torah said that this is the reason for the mitzvah, so then that's of course the truth. So why can't we then use the reason of the mitzvah to determine when the mitzvah applies? Second, says the Amedrash Vamasa, there's another question. Here, How is it possible that Shlomo actually made a mistake and at the end his wives led him astray? Here he is the wisest person who ever lived. So how is it possible that his wives would be able to lead him astray from Hashem and he wouldn't be able to stand strong? So the Hamedrash Vamasa explains that the idea in this story is that when the Torah gives a command, of course there's a reason. And of course we can study why the Torah said to do this. So all of that is totally appropriate and that's a good way of approaching the Torah. But at the end of the day, we have to understand that regardless of the reasons the Torah gave, even though those reasons are true, but we have to follow the rules of the Torah simply because that is the way it is. The Torah said to do something. And the reason for that is because people are biased. People are susceptible to come up with all sorts of exceptions to the rules, which are going to benefit them. So if we allow people to make exceptions to the mitzvahs, then it's going to be totally lawless. It's going to be chaos. And everyone's going to be making all sorts of exceptions, depending on how they feel at the moment. Now, it is true that there are towering people who are incredibly unique who could go through the reasons of the Torah and assess where and when they apply. So Shlomo was not wrong. He was a unique person, the wisest person who ever lived, and he actually would have been able to go through the mitzvahs and figure out when he was able to make an exception to them. So Shlomo's idea to begin with was not incorrect. The problem was that if Shlomo's able to decide when the halacha applies and when to make an exception. So then it would lead in the future to all sorts of problems because people who are not as smart as Shlomo are going to be making exceptions and leniencies for themselves when it's inappropriate. So that's why Shlomo had to be thwarted and he had to mess up what he was trying to do, not because he was actually wrong. He was right that he himself knew when to apply the mitzvahs and when to change them. But for future generations who might look to him as a role model, so Hashem had to mess up what he was doing. And that's why at the end, his experiment failed and he ended up being led astray by his wives to illustrate for all future generations that 
that no one should pick and choose when to apply the mitzvahs. We just have to follow the rules because that's what the Torah said to do. So this explains what happened with the story of Shlomo. Now, coming to the story of Moshe, so in the previous Parsha, the Hamedrish Vahamasa explained that Moshe's complaint against Hashem is because he felt like it does not make sense what's going on here. Hashem sent him to save the Jews, but the Jews don't want him to lead them and free them. So it seems to Moshe like some of the Jews are not all that interested in being freed. So Moshe comes back to Hashem and he says, if your goal is to save a people who are being oppressed and to free the Jews from this crisis, so they don't want to be saved. So what's the point of saving people who don't want to be saved? So Hashem's response to Moshe is, you're misunderstanding what I'm doing. I'm not trying to protect them and save them because they're oppressed. I'm trying to bring them to Israel and make them the Jewish people. So that's why Moshe was punished that he didn't enter Israel because since he didn't understand what the purpose of this process of redemption was, so he was not able to enter Israel. So that was Moshe's mistake in this conversation that he says to Hashem, why are you saving people who don't want to be saved? So he is questioning the decisions that Hashem is making. So in that sense, he is similar to Shlomo, that both of them are appealing to human reason even against the rules and commands of Hashem. So they both think that even when Hashem says to do something, we can apply our own human reason and question what he's telling us to do. So just as Hashem responded strongly to Shlomo, he also responded strongly to Moshe to show him that a person has to follow the word of Hashem and not question it and not insert their own human reason into it. So that's why Hashem now applies the Avos. He's saying that you, Moshe, have already gotten the explanation for what I'm trying to accomplish by taking the Jews out of Egypt. So you're questioning me, even though Hashem had already told him that after he frees them from Egypt, he's going to bring them to Israel. So Moshe didn't understand the full ramifications of what Hashem was telling him, but Hashem had already given Moshe the key to understanding it. As opposed to the Avos, says Hashem, they could have asked me real questions because they never were even told what the point of some of the things that were happening to them were, and yet they still didn't question me. So you, Moshe, who has even more information than them, you should not be questioning me and you should continue to follow my instructions. So that's the first part of what Hashem responds to him. But then he even undermines Moshe's whole argument. And he says, I heard the crying of the Jewish people, meaning you, Moshe, are trying to tell me that the Jews don't really want to leave because they're not following your lead. Says Hashem, I know what's really going going on and they are suffering terribly. They are oppressed in their slavery. So Moshe, you are not even correct that the Jews don't want to leave. Therefore, go free the Jews, which is what I told you to do. So that's how Hashem responds to them. And then he continues to explain 
to Moshe what's going to happen. First, I'm going to redeem you from the oppression of the Egyptians. So that's what Moshe thought the purpose of this whole process was to help the Jews who were being oppressed. Says Hashem, yes, you are right. That is the first of my goals. That's the Hotseisi. But then says Hashem, I'm going to continue. Because even if the Jews are not oppressed, they're still spiritually enslaved to the Egyptians. The Jews had assimilated a lot of Egyptian culture and religion in Egypt. Says Hashem, I'm going to save you from their servitude, from their spiritual influence. Then Hashem continues the Ga'alti. I'm going to redeem you, which means that the whole world will know that the Jews are no longer the slaves of the Egyptians. They are freed. And then finally, I will take you to be my nation. So at that point, the Jews will complete the process and become the chosen people of Hashem. So Hashem is trying to tell Moshe with these four different synonyms that it's not just about saving the Jews from the oppression of the Egyptians, but it's about transforming them into the people of Hashem. So that's why each of the four synonyms is important on its own, and we commemorate each one of these languages with one cup at the Seder. So all of this is Hashem's response to Moshe, who questions his command, and Hashem is trying to show him that the Jews have a special relationship with Hashem, they are his people, and the result of that is that they need to follow his command the Torah, regardless of what's going on and regardless of how they feel about it. And even if they feel like they have all sorts of excuses why the rules shouldn't apply to them, they need to continue following the laws of Hashem. So that's Hashem's response to Moshe's questioning. Now, later on, when Hashem splits the sea for the Jews, so the Torah says, Vayiru ha'am, the people feared Hashem, Vayaminu ba'ashem Moshe avdo, and they believed in Hashem and Moshe his servant. So two things happened. They feared Hashem and they believed in Hashem and Moshe, his servant. Now, the Medrash says that the people did not fear Hashem before this. So this seems very hard to believe that the people did not fear Hashem throughout this whole process up until the splitting of the sea. And the same question would be on the belief. It already says that the people believed what Moshe was telling them. So what suddenly changed at the splitting of the sea that now the Torah says they feared and believed in Hashem and Moshe? What was different from what had been going on up until now? So says the Hamedrash Vahamasa, the same thing that was bothering Moshe, that why do we have to totally submit to Hashem and whatever he says to do? Maybe it's okay to question some of his commands. So the Jewish people had the same question. They also were not ready to submit to whatever Hashem tells them to do. They were willing to accept that there is a God who created the world, that there is a power that rules over the world. That that sort of universal concept of God is easier to understand, as the Hamedrash Ramasa explained in Adrush and Parshas Vayetze. So the Jews were ready to accept that there is a God who runs the world. 
but a God who's more connected with the Jewish people and who's concerned about who they act. So that's a harder thing to believe. So the Jews were not yet ready to understand that point. Now, so long as Hashem was taking them out of Egypt, they didn't need to believe in this enhanced relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people. They could believe that there's a God who runs the world and he doesn't want people to be oppressed. So that was enough belief for them that Hashem is going to take them out of Egypt. But now that they left Egypt, so now Hashem takes it to the next level and he shows them that it's not just the universe universal God, something that runs the world, but it's a God that wants to have a special relationship with them. And the proof for that is that Moshe is his messenger and Hashem is acting through Moshe to continue to lead them. So now they see this is not just about a God redeeming people who are oppressed, but now this is about a God who wants to have a relationship with them. Because if he wasn't interested in a relationship, then as soon as they left Egypt, Hashem should have dropped them there and let Moshe continue leading them. There's no need for Hashem to continue to be involved once they've been freed from oppression. But the fact that he's still involved with the splitting of the sea means that Hashem wants to have something more than just freeing them from oppression. He wants to lead them to be his chosen people and to do something in the world. So that's what Moshe is now trying to teach them at the splitting of the sea. That's what it means that they now believe in Hashem and Moshe, his servant. What Moshe is doing as the messenger, as the servant of Hashem, indicates that the Jews should believe in Hashem, the special God that wants to be connected with them. So that's also why the Jews fully feared Hashem at this point, because originally when they just believed in a universal God, so there's nothing to fear because this God doesn't care what you do. You could love him, you could be grateful to him for creating the world and sustaining it, but he doesn't care what you do, so there's nothing to fear. But now that the Jews understand that Hashem wants to be connected with them, and he has a mission for them, and he cares about what they do, so that's why the Torah says that now they feared him, because now they understand that they have a role to play in the world, and they could mess it up. So that explains why at Kriyas Yamsuf, the Jews come to fear and to believe in Hashem fully in a way that they had not beforehand. Originally, they understood that God is the force of the world. He's in charge of the world. But now they understand that he has a special role and a special mission for them to do, and he's going to give them the Torah and lead them to Israel and all the things that come eventually in Jewish history. So this is the same process that the Hamedrash Vahamasa explained in Parshas Vayetze happened to Yaakov. Originally, he understood that there is a God who runs the world, but then he came to understand during his dream that he, as the forefather of the Jewish people, had a special role to play in Hashem's plan for the world. So the same thing has now happened on a communal level to the whole Jewish people. They went from not understanding their special role, just thinking that there is a universal God, to suddenly having a special role to play as the chosen people. So that is the shift that the Torah is describing at Kriyas Yamsuf. 
Now, the specific feature of what happened during Kriyas Yamsuf is that when the Jews left Egypt, so again, at that point, they did not realize that Hashem had a special role for them. They just thought that Hashem was saving them because he doesn't like to see people oppressed, so he'll always stand up for the people who are being oppressed. Now, once the Jews get to the sea, so they see Paro and his army coming at them, and they realize that they're in big trouble. So again, they pray to Hashem because now they are oppressed again. They're in crisis. They're about to be killed. So they dive into Hashem to save them from yet another oppression. They had thought that Hashem was only there to save them. So once they left Egypt, he was done saving them. But now at the sea, they needed help again. So they asked Hashem to save them. Now, in order to save them, all Hashem needed to do was to return the sea. And then the Jews would have been on one side and the Egyptians on the other side and the Jews would have been saved. But Hashem went one step further. He killed the Egyptian armies in the sea. Now that added element that the Egyptian army was destroyed in the sea was unnecessary to save the Jews. That was not Hashem acting on behalf of the Jews. It was Hashem judging the enemies of the Jews. So now the Jews understood that Hashem is not only trying to save them, he's also avenging on their behalf. So they understood that something is different. It's not just the universal God who protects people, but it's the specific God of the Jewish people who acts on their behalf. So that's what the Torah says, Vayar Yisrael sayad hagdola Hashem When the Jews saw the hand of Hashem punishing the Egyptians, so now, That led to the fear and belief in Hashem and the mission of Moshe, who's Hashem's messenger, to turn the Jewish people into the chosen people who live a life of Torah and spreading the message of Hashem. So that's how the story of Kriyas Yamsuf solidified those beliefs for them. Now, says the Amedrash Vamasa, if we continue the story, so throughout the desert, these doubts continue to come back to the Jews. And that's why they keep complaining throughout that they want to go back to Egypt because they're not able to understand this mission, this role that Hashem has for them. So they keep reverting to the original idea that Hashem is going to drop them at some point, that he's only here to save them from oppression, but he doesn't have a larger plan for them. And Moshe keeps reassuring them that Hashem took them out of Egypt to be his nation because there is a long-term goal for Jewish history. So this is the back and forth that comes up a few times in the desert that the Jews are trying to grasp this idea that's been introduced that there is a special relationship with Hashem that's coming out through all of these miracles. And the miracle that most symbolized that relationship was the Slav. Because the Gemara in Yuma Ayin Hamud Beis explains that the word can mean two things. Tzadikim ochlim osa b'shalva. The righteous would eat it peacefully. They would be content. Rishaim domelahen kesilvin. For the wicked, 
it was the other way. The word could be read like thorns. So two people were eating the same food and the righteous person enjoyed it and the wicked person did not. So this was a very clear miracle that Hashem is leading them towards something. He's going to continue to be involved and he's not about to just drop them once they're safe. So that explains what the Medrash means that from the miracle of the Slav, the Jews fully understood the purpose of the redemption because until then, of course, they knew they had been freed, but they thought that maybe this is just Hashem saving an oppressed people. From the miracle of the Slav, they came to learn the full meaning of the Exodus, that the Jews have a relationship with Hashem. And there's a continuing point to this relationship that the Jews have a mission to live a life of Torah. So that's the first drasha, again, explaining a very key point in the whole story of this Parsha, how the Jews transformed into becoming not just a nation that was freed, but the Jewish people with all that that means. Now, the second drasha focuses on the story of Paro's stubbornness. So in the third plague of lice, it says that the magicians were not able to do it through their magic. So they say to Paro, Etzba Elokimhi, this is the finger of Hashem. We cannot do this through magic. It has to be Hashem. Vayechazak lev Paro. So Paro gets stubborn and he refuses to free the Jews. So the flow of these psukim is strange. It sounds like because the magicians told Paro that this was Hashem, therefore he doubled down on not freeing the Jews. Which seems backwards. Once Paro realized that this was Hashem, so that should have motivated him to free the Jews, not to keep going with his plan. Now, later at the plague of Dever, when the animals are killed, so it says, Hashem ben Mikne Israel, Hashem separated, he only killed the cattle of the Egyptians, not the Jews. Paro, so Paro sent out to do research about whose cattle had died, and it turned out, that the Jewish cattle had not been killed, only the Egyptian ones. So this hardens Paro's heart and he refuses to free the Jews. So again, the same question. Why would this lead to Paro being more stubborn? And also, why is this the only plague that Paro does research as to whether it affected the Jews? Even the earlier plagues did not affect the Jews. When the wild animals came, it was only in the Egyptian neighborhoods, not the Jews. So why didn't Paro do any research at that point? And after he realized that only the Egyptian cattle had been killed, so why didn't he in fact free the Jews at that point because it's clear that Moshe is right. So why didn't that lead Paro to free the Jews? So Damedrash Ramasa wants to explain what is the stubbornness of Paro. And he says that this type of stubbornness we find all the time. There are all sorts of people who do the wrong thing and then Hashem sends them a message and they refuse to listen. And they come up with all sorts of excuses about why these things are happening to them, but they refuse to accept that this is Hashem sending them a a message not to do what they're doing. So this type of stubbornness is not unique to Paro. It's a general feature of people that they refuse to back down from what they're doing, even when Hashem sends them a punishment or a message that this is the wrong direction. So Paro's one of many in a large group of people who refuse to listen to Hashem and back down from what they're doing. So the same was true in ancient Egypt. All these plagues are affecting the Egyptians. 
things and the Jews are being spared, but they keep coming up with all sorts of scientific reasons and excuses for why it might be this way. The land in Goshen is different or the atmosphere or the air is different. There's some difference between the Jewish neighborhood and the Egyptian neighborhood. So Paro keeps deluding himself that the reason why it's only happening to the Egyptians and not the Jews can be explained scientifically. So it's all an excuse not to have to listen to Hashem. And that's exactly what his magicians tell him. They say, Etzba Elohim Hu. This is the finger of Elohim, which is the universal God, the God who runs the whole world. So the magicians are trying to tell him, yes, we cannot replicate the lice. So obviously this comes from Hashem. It's supernatural, but it's the universal Hashem that runs the world. He doesn't care specifically about the Jews versus the Egyptians. He's just running the world. And for whatever scientific reason, the lice are affecting the Egyptians and not the Jews. So the magicians try to convince Paro that even though this is the actions of Hashem, but it's not Hashem, the God who cares about the Jews. It's Elohim, the universal God. And there's some sort of excuse as to why the Kinim are not affecting the Jews. So that's why Paro doubles down on not freeing the Jews. But all of these excuses were only possible when the plagues were affecting the people. So then you could argue that maybe there's some sort of difference between the Egyptians versus the Jews who are foreigners. Maybe they developed somehow a little bit differently. But in the plague of Dever, that did not affect the people. The animals died. And obviously there's no difference between the cattle of Egyptians and the cattle of Jews. It's all the same. It's just a question of who owns it. So it's impossible to explain how the Egyptian cattle died and the Jewish cattle lived. So now Paro has a much bigger problem. And that's why he does research because he wants to figure out some excuse to explain away this development. How did the Jewish cattle survive? Now there was no explanation. So this showed that Hashem was not just doing random plagues and they were affecting random people, but Hashem was trying to save specifically the Jewish people. So how did Paro explain this away and convince himself that it's okay to keep the Jews enslaved? So the Hamedrish Vamasa suggests, the Medrash says that a kind God would not attack people before their property. The proper way to punish someone is to first affect their property. And if they don't listen to that, then you affect the person themselves. So the strange thing about these plagues is that the first plagues do target the people and only the seventh plague of Dever moves on to their cattle, their property. So Paro raised the question, if God is a good, kind God, then why did he affect the people first and only later the cattle? First, he should have gone after the property and only then moved on to the people. Says Paro, what we see from here is that this God of the Jews is not a good God. He's not a kind God. He's an angry, vindictive God. The pagans in the olden days believed that there were different gods who represented different attributes. So some were kindly and some were angry. Some were punishing and some were merciful. So says Paro, this God who's fighting on behalf of the Jews is not a kind God. He's a vengeful God and that's why first he punished the people and only later moved on to the property. Now, the Hamedrish Vamasa has explained earlier that 
Paro did not see himself as a wicked authoritarian dictator who just did whatever he felt like and enslaved whoever he wanted to. The opposite, Paro tried to present himself like a king who followed the laws, but he would twist and warp the laws to be able to do whatever he wanted. But Paro's whole persona, the way he presented himself, is as if he's someone who's really law-abiding. So when he enslaved the Jews, he presented it all as if he's doing the right thing. He's taking these foreigners, he's exposing them to the great culture of Egypt, he's giving them a new life in a new country, and of course it's not good for people to not do anything and sit around bored and not have jobs, so Paro gave them jobs and he enslaved them and he made sure that they worked hard, all sorts of excuses which were aimed at making Paro look good, but of course he was just twisting and warping the laws for his own benefit, so he was just making excuses for why he was doing something totally evil. We have the same dynamic with American Southern slavery, that there were all sorts of excuses made for why this is in fact the right thing, it's better for the African slaves, and of course all of it was just twisted and warped in order to benefit the people who were making money and wanted to see the system continue. So Paro did the same thing with the Jewish slaves. So now Paro tries to present this all together. And he says, we Egyptians are doing the right thing. We're trying to force these foreign Jews to live proper Egyptian lives. And their God, who is a wicked God, he's an evil God, he's now fighting against us precisely because we're trying to do the right thing and shape up the Jews. So we have a battle between good and evil and the Paro in his warped way presents it that the Egyptians are on the good side against the God of the Jews. And again, his proof is because God first attacked the people and only later attacked the cattle. So this became Paro's latest excuse for why he needs to continue to enslave the Jews and continue to fight this battle on behalf of, quote unquote, the right side. So that's why the Pusuk says that once Paro came up with this warped excuse that the God of the Jews is the bad God, so now he again doubles down that he needs to continue to enslave the Jews. So that's why Paro refuses to save the Jews, even though it's now clear that that this God is fighting on their behalf. So all of this shows us the lengths to which Paro is able to delude himself and come up with far-fetched excuses to try to defend what he wants to be doing. And Ahmedus Ramasa concludes that we have all sorts of examples of this throughout Jewish history, all sorts of authorities over the Jews who claimed to be helping the Jews. And of course, they were harming them and doing all sorts of damage. And they could defend it in all sorts of far-fetched ways and come up with all sorts of excuses. And even within the Jewish people, we have people who are supposedly doing quote-unquote good for others, but it's all just an excuse for them to be able to do what they want. So we're all susceptible to defending what we're biased, what we want to do for our own benefit, and coming up with all sorts of excuses, which anyone can see are totally false, but they only cause us to double down on whatever we want to do, as opposed to what Hashem is telling us to do. So that's his second drusha, where he elaborates on how far Paro would go to continue to fool himself into thinking that he was doing the right thing by enslaving the Jews.